Hello, Duncan Green here with your weekly roundup of COVID-inspired posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. It's another amazing sunny morning in uh, in London where I'm in lockdown, but the British lockdown's pretty relaxed, so I've been running in the park and the swans' babies have hatched, as have the ducklings, so everybody's getting a little bit too close to each other, admiring the new babies as they sk- skate around on the ponds in the park. It was a lovely morning. Back to business. Um... First post of the week was links I liked, um, uh, all COVID related. The one piece I would highlight here was from Stefan Durkin, who's at the Blavatnik School in Oxford and used to be the chief economist at DFID. Stefan had a very sensible post uh, on how policymakers should cope with massive uncertainty. So you're making decisions in a situation where you really don't know what's going to happen. You're in this kind of fog. And Stefan pointed out that one thing to do is to do no regret policies, policies that you would want to do anyway, that you think are going to help with the COVID response, um, make a whole lot of sense. Things like social protection, shielding vulnerable groups, cash transfers to poor people to drive the recovery. You can do a whole bunch of stuff, which even if it's not quite the ideal thing, is still going to make things better. And that seems like a very sensible way of coping with uncertainty. Um the next two days were taken up by Heather Marquette, who's a professor at the University of Birmingham. And she did a two-part um, blog on how social science research can help with the COVID response. And um, in particular, she, she got very graphic. She was using graphics to... Um, and I th- you know, I'm a very verbal person. I'm a words person. But I, I get it that people find visual images incredibly useful and her her first post was about the power of gra- graphics to cut through complexity and she had three fantastic graphics which take the sort of well-known flattening the curve kind of um, uh, pieces and she worked with an illustrator um, and came up with some really nice variations on those which show which introduced a bit more complexity uh, into the uh, discussion of the response to COVID. It's very hard to talk about graphics in any useful way on a podcast. So I just urge you to go and have a look at those because they are really smart. Very nice work. Um, the second post was um, uh, was about how do you design social science response and research in the short and medium and long term? Because obviously there's a whole bunch of short term research needs around the impact of COVID. But then there's medium term stuff about the response and whether the response is working and whether there are unintended consequences. And then there's long term um, research on the long term impact and you know the, the, the nature of the recovery and so on. Her central point is that you can't triage, that you can't say we're just going to deal with the most visible issues first, because actually the cracks that start to appear early on uh, that actually become long-term effects could be the most important. So you have to start working on those as well. And she comes up with a very nice sort of approach for how do you combine short, medium and long-term thinking in the way you do your um, research design. And she's had a very powerful response from lots of researchers all over saying, this is exactly what we need. This is what we're doing already. This is an example. And she had a very nice uh, example from um, prisons, um, so, so she she illustrated this sort of approach she's got um, using the impact of COVID on prisons as a kind of research topic. Really smart. Um, she said two issues uh, emerge a bit. She echoes Stefan's uh, post that I mentioned earlier. 
Do no harm has got to be central to the way you design your responses. And that means including things like gender and conflict analysis in your discussion of policy ideas and responses from the beginning. And the second one is the don't let a good crisis go to waste, a much overused um, uh, quote, including by me, and no one knows who it comes from. But it might be Winston Churchill. It probably wasn't. It certainly wasn't originally Rahm Emanuel. Anyway, that whole point about how you... um, uh, how you uh, take advantage of the policy space provided by a crisis like COVID to, to build back better, to make to make important reforms. Um, so a powerful two-parter there. And it kind of illustrates what I'm trying to do with the blog at the moment in, in, in COVID response, which is I'm trying to get the good sort of social science stuff, good research, good some of it quite northern, quite top-down, and combine that with really good... Um, uh, stuff from the bottom up, what's emerging on the ground. And I think if, if I can get good content from both those areas, it will be a, a worthwhile exercise. So the next, the last two uh, posts this week were actually illustrating that. They were on the impact of COVID and, 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 and on civil society and how civil society is responding. And we had a sort of helicopter piece from the top and a brilliant bottom-up piece from the bottom, and they combined really well together. So the helicopter piece was by uh, Saskia Breckenmacher, Thomas Carruthers and Richard Youngs at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I'm a huge fan of Saskia and Tom because they just over the years have produced some really top class posts for, for From Poverty to Power. And I never have to edit them at all. I mean, they just write so well. So I'm always really excited when I see something from them. They had a big piece um, on the Carnegie uh, website and I chopped it down. They they. They, they approved my chops to try and get it down to blog length because people are so so pressed for time and don't want to read, you know, the, the, the TLDR, too long, didn't read a kind of phenomenon. So I cut that down um, uh, that, and, and summarised what they've got from this enormous network of, of Carnegie uh, endowment sort of contacts. So they, they talked about the disruption. But then they talk mainly focused on the opportunity for civil society. So the disruption, which I think people are very well well aware of, some very nasty crackdowns on civil society governments using COVID as a pretext to to step up their fight against to to shut down um, dissident, troublemaking civil society organisations. Enormous ramping up of surveillance. I can't believe I just said ramping up. I'm really sorry about that. Um, uh, an enormous step up in in surveillance. Um, uh, techniques nominally to um, manage COVID, but actually uh, they're liable to stick around afterwards. Um, states of emergency in 50 countries, you know, a huge spread of political crackdown. But that's not what um, the Carnegie people were talking about. They were talking about the kinds of activism that they're seeing. So and with, there's lots of examples, many more in the longer piece on the Carnegie web, uh, site. There's um, Mutual Aid. Um, all over the world. They gave one example from Tunisia where 100,000 people signed up to a Facebook group which ended up setting up 24 distribution centres, collecting money, collecting and distributing medical supplies, organising volunteers to disinfect public spaces. You know, huge effort there. Repurposing civil society organisations that were doing longer term or other stuff to, to work on the emergency response. Fighting disinformation where governments are just putting or other groups are putting out random and incorrect stuff. Um, you know, the example they gave from Brazil where uh, NGOs have organised to try and combat the nonsense that the president is putting out on, on COVID. 
It's all about new forms, um, a kind of COVID accountability, which is emerging uh, as a, as a you know, work on human rights violations taking place where security forces are beating people up uh, you know, to, to enforce lockdown, um, sluggish responses by governments where civil society organisations are trying to push governments to go faster, and defence of vulnerable groups in Singapore, for example, NGOs have led a campaign to try and get better conditions for migrants who've been migrant workers who've been locked up in buildings under in very poor conditions and have made some good progress. And then, final point, the, the, the final thing they pointed to is that there are new areas of protest emerging, where groups like gig economy workers and delivery workers and Amazon uh, yeah, workers in the US suddenly both find themselves in huge demand and therefore have more negotiating power and also find themselves greatly at risk in some cases because of uh, being out there um, still interacting with members of the public and it's starting to spark labour mobilisation in areas which were fairly quiet before. They finish with some big questions. You know, Will this lead to a regaining of civil society legitimacy? Because in many countries, governments have actually been quite successful in in, in criticising and attacking civil society as being foreign-funded uh, and being alien to the you know, national identity and all this kind of thing. Um, the, Carnegie, the Carnegie writers say that new alliances, if, if new alliances with biz, local businesses or local faith groups or other, other networks emerge, this could help civil society rebuild its legitimacy in the eyes of developing country publics. Um, how do you take all this energy that's emerged at the local level and turn it into national work, national presence, national advocacy? And how do you take that emergency response and turn it into a push for political reform? I mean, I was reminded a bit in, in this by of what happened in Mexico in 1985, where a massive earthquake killed 20,000 people. And out of that emerged social movements that initially were just about helping the earthquake survivors, but they turned into social movements that actually became very important political players in Mexico. Is that going to happen in more countries? Um, they say that there's, uh, that, yeah, they, they rightly point out that there's plenty of possibilities that, and that civil society organisations will fall into the division and divisiveness that we're seeing in many countries, blaming it on migrants, blaming it on foreigners. And will they be able to overcome that and, and sort of actually build bridges and build solidarity and collaboration? And then they said, you know, and coming down the road, it's already here in many places, a looming economic crisis, which is going to destroy civil CSO's financial base in some cases and present a whole new set of challenges. Um, they finished with some ideas for outside support. You know, if, if, if you're a donor or a government trying to support civil society's contribution to coping with the, with the, the crisis, they say you've got to be much more flexible about what happens with your money. You've got to include civil society in these really big packages, you know, in the big money that's being talked about. Um, and you've got to consistently value civil society and defend it because it really is under assault in many cases. So, as I said, that was the sort of helicopter view from, from, from Washington. From the bottom, we had Yogesh, uh, the next day, we had Yogesh Gore and Farooq Jiwa of the Cody Institute. The Cody Institute is this really amazing organization based in Canada that has been doing leadership training for civil society and community organizations for 60 years. Um, so it's got an enormous network. And Yogesh and Farooq drew on the, some of that network to identify areas of community entrepreneurship in response to COVID. So where are CSOs, mainly in India, most of their examples are from India, um, doing really interesting stuff in response to the pandemic? 
and they came up with four areas that they've identified. The first one is actually producing face masks. You know, the, 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 the self-help groups, the women's self-help groups in India are amazing. And they identified, you know, one particular, the, the Self-Employed Women's Association, which is absolutely huge, but many others, there are 65,000 women uh, in different self-help groups that have produced 20 million masks up to um, the 12th of April. And they're doing it to, to quality standards, the, the Yogesh and Farooq say, um, and at an accelerating rate. So a very interesting sort of response by very entrepreneurial women's groups in India. Um, there's a whole load of civil society groups getting involved in awareness raising and looking after the most vulnerable. Um, and then finally, food systems. This was really interesting. They say, you know, you've got all these civil society organizations and networks of small farmers and um, which historically have struggled because they're doing local sourcing and they're facing massive supply chains and very, very big modern uh, producers uh, yeah, with, with scale and, um, uh, and, and, these, and the, yeah, the ability to shop around and drive prices down and so on. COVID has interrupted a lot of those big supply chains, which have suddenly started to look very fragile and fragment. And into that space are coming some of these local food networks. So they think that there's a really interesting process of food localization going on. And they have some interesting examples from India. So this is what I want to keep doing with the blog over the next couple of months until this all goes away, hopefully. Um, so do please, I rely on people sending me ideas on giving good examples, both helicopter stuff from the top analysis, you know, smart social science thinking and fantastic analysis from the bottom, authors from different countries, local experiences. Do keep, please keep sending me the stories and I will keep putting them out there. Right. Have a good weekend. Bye. I'm off to see the swans again.